On this episode of Profiles, we are joined by Billy Jenkins. Billy received his Bachelor of Science in Oceanography from the United States Naval Academy in 2009, went on to receive a Master's in Engineering Acoustics in 2010 from the Naval Postgraduate School, and served as an officer in the U.S. Navy until 2017, when he came to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where he is currently a Ph.D. candidate. Billy is still active in the U.S. Navy Reserve and is a National Defense Science and Engineering Graduate Fellow. Very excited to have him on the show. Like we are recording now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're live. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, um, we're Gucci, so cheers, gents. All right, cheers. cheers. Try not to spill any of this. These guys are yeah. about as full as they get. Thanks. Whew. So we're drinking a very special beverage today. Very appropriate for our guest, Billy Jenkins. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. We're really excited about this. So... Um, before we get into all all that you are, let's talk about the drink. <laughs> yes. Um, first impressions. Let's start there. The best grog I've ever had. That's Ooh. pretty good, man. But it's really good, but it's also not a very hard standard to beat because <laughs> traditionally when grog is employed in today's naval circles, it's meant as a punishment. So mm. <laughs> um, usually it's in modern mixtures, it's just a mixture of everything all the alcohol from the bar into one giant bowl and some parties a toilet bowl and oh uh, no and and it's it's (laughs) it's employed at very the the most formal occasion the most formal type of party you can have in the navy is called a dining in um, okay or a dining out a dining in is where the officers of a ship um, basically have a really fancy party you wear mm-hmm. your tuxedo uniform and uh, there's you know prime rib and it's a formal sit down kind of dinner and there's a scripted procedure and ceremony and yeah it's all very traditional right well and then a dining out is simply denotes that you invite your spouses or girlfriends oh, or guests or whatever so, that makes sense and um, because we got this tradition from the Brits who are rather formal uh, group of folks um, there's all these rules that you have to follow and if you break a rule and uh, somebody spots you they report you and you have to pay a penalty yeah oh, and usually the penalty is you you're made to go up in front of the entire dining floor and drink the grog so <laughs> this is a much finer wow. cocktail you prepared for me tonight wow. I appreciate you <laughs> so as astute viewers may guess our guest billy jenkins was in the navy hey <laughs> and we're drinking navy grog <laughs> so um so yeah let me go on a tangent about this one which is significantly more palatable mm. than a toilet bowl <laughs> mixture of bad <laughs> alcohol. I'll say. Yeah. So, uh, so this Navy grog is uh, really, honestly, has nothing to do with the Navy. So this is uh, uh, the name is great, and I, I love it. I it has alcohol drink, in it. It has alcohol in it. It has quite a bit of alcohol in it, in fact. Um, so this drink is uh, it's got kind of your classic tiki elements. It's got your sweeteners. It's got a couple citruses, and it's got a rum blend, and. Um, I aged the rum blend in my uh, American oak barrel here for a couple weeks. So 
uh, longtime viewers or longtime <laughs> listeners will know about this. Very but. cool. Andrew <laughs> Andrew is very extra about his his liquors and yeah. the barrel aging. I think is the pinnacle. Yeah. In both terms of being extra, but also paying off in terms of flavor. It just it makes a huge difference. We'll 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 just try it by itself later. Yeah. This rum blend. It's Great. uh it's just some some of the smoothest stuff you've ever made. barrel aging stuff. Man, it's so good. But this grog, it's actually, this comes from a recipe by Don the Beachcomber, who is one of the OGs of the tiki scene. He and Trader Vic <laughs> were the, kind of the two. And uh, he actually created this drink because a lot of classic tiki drinks were seen as feminine drinks. Mm, and yeah. he wanted the masculine equivalent. Sure. And so they called it the Navy Grog. Yeah. Because it was, you know, masculine equipment and didn't change any of the elements. It's, yeah. it's, it's like <laughs> right. exactly a tiki drink. It's just, it's all marketing, you know? Yep, yep. It's all in the name. Yeah. But uh, I, I love I love how this stuff comes out. It's just, uh, I think it's eminently drinkable. Um, and yeah, Noel, what do, you, what do you think of it? I mean, I agree that it's it's got the classic flavor of a tiki drink. At this point, I don't know how well I can tell tiki drinks apart from each other. <laughs> Aside from like... Some have a pineapple and in then are served in a really like flamboyant glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, this one, I mean, I would say it's 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 more refreshing than mm-hmm. usual. Like, th- I think the sweetness is a little better balanced. Yeah. The aftertaste is, is tiki drink aftertaste. I think is usually good. Yeah. This one's like just well. Um, Let's say like well muffled. Yeah, it's really rounded. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think part of that's the barrel aging, part of that's the cocktail itself, and part of that is in the cocktail there's something called allspice dram, mm. which is just a little bit, but I aged that with the with the rum blend, and I think that really just ties everything together. Yeah, this is this is well balanced, well rounded. Um, I love it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well we'll We'll have at least one of these tonight. It's a, it's a good thing more. there's a microphone between me and my drink. Otherwise, it, <laughs> it would disappear far more quickly. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Billy, uh, tell us a little bit. Yeah, give us give us the elevator pitch on your background. So, I mean, you're, you're at Scripps Institution of Oceanography now, getting your PhD. But you didn't really take the traditional grad school path, shall true. we say. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> let's see. Luckily, you wrote it up for me, so I don't forget. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, just I, take another sip and just go yeah, right in. That's right. So I um, I attended the U.S. Naval Academy mm-hmm. in Annapolis, Maryland. Also obligatory for my dad, go Army here. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Where's the exit? <laughs> we started. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I graduated in 2009 from the Naval Academy, I majored in oceanography when I was there, and um, while I was, <laughs> funny enough, I was on restriction. I'm not going to tell you why I was on restriction, but <laughs> may or may not be related to this beverage in front of us, <laughs> but um, it was, I, I got restricted. I got in trouble. A bunch of us got in trouble, and um, I just kind of thought about, like, what's what am I doing? What's my trajectory here? You know, I met this premier institution for academics and I hadn't really been focusing on my grades and not really taking it as seriously as I could have been. Mm-hmm. And so that at the same time I was um <clears throat> I was in ocean engineering getting my butt kicked in 
basic engineering classes. Like I love the ocean side of it. I loved yeah. the intro to ocean engineering class and, you know, coastal stuff. And I, so I'm, I'm taking coast or a intro to oceanography. This is as a sophomore second semester intro to oceanography. And we're learning about currents and tectonics and yeah. earth science and juxtaposed with, uh, he was a retired Royal Naval officer. Oh God. Who is teaching dynamics? And, and oh God! I started dynamics, and I thought, this, how hard can this be? This is F equals M A. It's <laughs> you know, it's very, not you know, very and, and hard. Apparently, I missed something. <laughs> <laughs> and F F equals M A was a little more difficult than I seem to have recalled. So um, I'm like <laughs> failing this guy's quizzes, and and he was like old school Brit, like humiliating yeah. people in in class. And oh, no. so I, you know, I was like, okay, well between getting restricted and not doing well in that major, I just had a bit of an existential realization that why don't I go do something that I actually enjoy? And so, um, the oceanography department took me with open arms and it's the best decision I ever made because I got really interested in the math in oceanography, which turned out to be the same that we were doing in dynamics, but you know, different scale different teacher yeah, yeah you different know. focus <laughs> so it all worked out and um and then um after the academy i went off to graduate school um so the naval academy that's a little unusual to go straight to grad school when yeah. i'm done um so i uh, <clears throat> i my junior year i basically made a deal with the submarine force um it was a competitive deal i had to compete but i said um applied for a program that if you signed a contract to become a nuclear officer, nuclear yeah. trained officer, mm-hmm. they would send you to a year of graduate school right mm-hmm. out of the Naval Academy. Yeah. So um, that was the only graduate education program that I qualified for. All the others, my GPA was too low for, <laughs> you know, like like uh, Fulbright or, all, you know, all those other yeah. named scholarships. There's no way, not a chance in hell I'd ever even get close to competing in those. But Nobody ever really wants to sub, you know, sign up for the submarine force in my class, and so um, they needed people, and and I I wanted to do that anyway. So yeah, um, and you know the the sentence I made a deal with the submarine force that's pretty is badass. quite unique and very badass. Yeah, yeah. it. I wish on, I, I got, could say it. Let me chew my ice. <laughs> yeah, chew it, chew it into into the microphone. <laughs> our, our our listeners <laughs> Just need that ASMR, your, Billy. Your viewers. <laughs> I mean, listeners, where am I? Um, <laughs> viewers, it's all the same thing. I keep saying viewers. I don't know. It's but, all going downhill. Yeah, it's right, all guys. Our viewers five minutes there. in. I, I promise we haven't had anything to drink before this one. I, I swear. Yeah. No, this is me stone cold sober. Um, so anyway, uh, it's not as badass as it sounds. You know, it, it, it's a nice program to get people um, into the submarine force and also uh, nuclear surface force, so the aircraft carriers, yeah, to kind of right. offer an incentive to people who are interested and to get them into the program and, you know, and give them a track to grad school. So yeah, that's the track I took. Um, I commissioned as a submarine officer in 2009, went off to uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, did my master's up there in engineering acoustics. And then I was off to um, nuclear power and submarine training. Wow. And then, um, yeah, three years on a submarine, USS Providence, SSN 719 in Groton, Connecticut. And then uh, 
Well, presumably only sometimes. Yeah, not all the time there. Yeah, (laughs) I can't tell you about the rest. But and sadly, she's just decommissioned. So oh really? Yeah. Um, So you know, kind of a little emotional about that. Yeah, it's it's a good ship. It's pretty reasonable. um, And then uh, three, almost three years in Japan on a shore duty. Okay. So, and then I came to Scripps. Yeah. And and we're gonna we're gonna come back to the nuclear sub stuff for okay, sure because yeah. that's you're gonna shake I, me down, liquor oh, me up, and shake me down. Right, exactly. <laughs> we're going for the state secrets here, Billy. That's that's what we need to know. No comment. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, the first so the first question I have so as somebody who was heavily considering service academies myself, I mean, long family history of the United States Military Academy, which again, no hard feelings. <laughs> Um, yeah so so yeah same team same team except well except when we're not except except not right um so my uh my dad went to the united states went to west point two of my uncles went to west point on different sides of my family oh wow Um, yeah you know long both my grandfathers served in, in the military during uh well one just at the end of world war ii and one during the korean war like yeah long family history uh military history and so that was kind of easy for me to like that to be an option. Yep. But I don't think that's obvious for many people. Like the, the service academies are pretty, I mean, the application process is pretty intense. The idea of even like considering applying is a pretty intense thing. And many people don't want to see their children going off into the military, you know, like yeah. through a very, very conscious decision. How did you end up coming to that? Was it also a family thing for you? Was it? It was. It was. My dad graduated from there. Um, okay. And, you know, he was supportive. My parents were supportive of my intent to go there as when I was a kid and in high school. Um, but for me, it was more than just following in footsteps. Um, it was, you know, my earliest memories as a child were... Uh, living in Japan, actually, in southern Japan. My okay. my parents were stationed there when I was a young kid. And so I grew up around ships, and I thought ships were really cool, <laughs> these big gray warships. And um, and I still think that. They are really cool. Um, I mean, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah they, <laughs> they really are. You know? They're impressive. And, uh, and, and the people who operate them are impressive. And um, my dad retired in... 1995 i was eight years old when we okay. we we had moved back we had moved to annapolis uh where we had a house he had taught at the naval academy a couple of years before japan classic taught physics yeah so yeah. <laughs> um you know like here i am eight nine years old what it was between my fifth and eighth birthdays or whatever we lived in annapolis okay. so first memories are japan second set of memories are in Annapolis, like going to the football games, very naval. You know, you know, we'd go on to the we we went to church on base yeah. um, at the the beautiful chapel there, and there were always midshipmen in our life. We would sponsor them on the weekends. They'd come over yep. and just relax. Uh, we'd cook for them, and I you know, I always looked up to that. And I you know then we moved away uh, when my dad retired in '95. We moved to Wisconsin, far away from the ocean, oh. far away from the military. Yeah. And I kind of miss that being around that activity. And, right. um, and at that age, you're so impressionable. You don't really appreciate just what goes into being yeah. in the Navy. So yeah. I kind of carried that with me until 
high school and I'll give it to my dad, you know, like, yeah, he was supportive, but he also kind of pushed back a little bit just to ensure that this was a me decision That's and not, hmm. not a him, you know, yeah. unduly influencing his kids. Right. So, um, but yeah, it, it was kind of, I was always drawn to go and serve in the Navy or, you know, mm-hmm. as backup, you know, the Coast Guard, something maritime related. I've always wanted to do. Okay. You know, that's so interesting because I think for most people, they've spent some time near a beach or near a shore. But I think once you're actually getting on ships and getting involved in running a ship, that completely changes your everyday life because there's so much work that goes into going out to sea, knowing how to be safe out there. Yeah. That truly, if you are getting on ships, you have a you lead a different lifestyle to the rest of society. Yeah, absolutely. So so that makes sense that if you grew up in that, in that environment, then go to Wisconsin, that's, that's uh, something you're going to be looking forward to coming back to at some point. Yeah. I, I missed, I certainly missed the, uh, the sense of community that even as a kid, I felt that growing up and, there's something special to that and any military family will will tell you that and i'm yeah. sure you know having heard from your family yeah your whole life so yeah it's it's something special about guy on time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's it's not just i mean there's the classic you know friendship forged in battle yada sure, yada, yeah. yada right but like there it is just different too when you're, you really are a part of a team. Yep. And I think I think people overstate that in many contexts, right? Like, you know, in our work and stuff, we're, we're parts of teams, but it's very different in the military where you, you are performing a super specific function that really on its own doesn't have any meaning. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and everybody else <laughs> has to do their job for yours to actually even do anything. Yeah. And that... that there's just a different level of, yeah, of like reliance on others. And, and you just have to be able to trust that other people are getting their job done. Yeah, it's very true. Um, you know, just the, the teamwork, I, I like how you phrase that, you know, you're here, you are doing often very menial things. And <laughs> as an officer, you do a lot of paperwork Oh yeah, <laughs> and a lot of training requirements and you're scratching your head. Like, how does this have any bearing on what we're doing? But you know, at the end of the day, the Navy works pretty darn well, you know, mm-hmm. certainly better than a lot of other navies out there. And yeah. a couple um, come to mind at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna name names. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um yeah. yeah, so and then and then equally important are the support systems in place for our sailors and, yeah. and other service members. Um so, you know, the the sacrifices at the families give you know things that spouses give up and the kids have to deal with so um, yeah yeah, it's a very unique it's not an easy lifestyle but it's a very rewarding one yeah it's funny too because uh i remember when i was out uh when i was out on the ravel and almost a year ago now in may but for those who don't know the rv roger ravel research vessel roger ravel is the largest research vessel that scripps operates so it's one of the big boys 283 feet Something like that. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's, it's big. Three hundred yeah. for sure. Yeah, for a research vessel, it's big. For a naval yeah. ship, it's tiny. It would be dinky, <laughs> right? Yeah. So uh, anyway, I I remember having a conversation with the bosun, um, and you know he was talking about how there's just 
there's some people really who once they serve at sea, it's really hard for them to come back yeah. and they really can't do anything else Yeah, because it's just, that's an environment in which they thrive. And generally, I think the people who really, really find that to be comfortable, like a truly comfortable long-term existence, can't, can't find comfort in like situations that are really different from that. Yeah. I mean, to your point and to your point, Noel, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, once you get underway and out to sea and some people kind of get, you know, bit by that bug and yeah. it's, it's a little addicting, um, once you're out there and underway and, you know, it's very humbling you realize just mm. how small you are and yeah. how big the ocean yeah. is and powerful. And, um, especially on a submarine, I imagine. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, but you know, there, there's, I think this also speaks to this, this international, I mean, it totally transcends national boundaries, yeah. the sense of, um, a communal existence with your fellow mariners. Mm. And there's a very long history of mariners helping each other, you know, even even two countries at war in the maritime domain, you know, even even in the most brutal conflicts like with the Japanese in World War II, mm -hmm. there were examples of humanity, you know, right. picking survivors out of the water and acknowledging the horror that they've just gone through because, Jeez. you know, you just got lucky. Right. It could have been you, right? So right. There, there's something universally... Um, um, equalizing about the ocean. Yeah. You know, so it's just so much bigger than any of us. Yeah. Any of our systems. Damn. You yeah. know, this, this obsession with the ocean, I haven't met that many sailors, but I've seen different ends of the spectrum of how that obsession with the ocean can manifest with some people. It comes through when you're, when you're talking to them and you just see that they, they, you know, it takes a while to, to get the sense that they're truly obsessed with the ocean. I've also met some crazy mariners <laughs> who just like can't stop See, talking this is, about this is what like, I was expecting. Yeah. yeah. Who can't stop talking <laughs> about like fishing and about yeah, yeah. waves and water and like <laughs> freaking mermaids and shit. Dude, fish it's it's the fishing for me. Yeah. It like gets me. I'm like I I don't understand fishing in general, but like <laughs> Yeah. Some dudes are just crazy for it. Yeah. Yeah. And when I say crazy, I mean literally crazy. Yeah, yeah. like, like <laughs> you get a little worried, you know? Yeah. 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 God, like, are you going to hurt someone? <laughs> <laughs> Intentionally, unintentionally, we're not sure. Yeah. yeah. It is pretty crazy. I mean, it's also, it's funny how there's just like such a majesty in it, but there's also just utter, like utter terror. I, I, yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, have you guys seen Dunkirk? The yeah. Nolan yeah. film? Yeah. The scene... I think the most frightening scene and like the most visceral scene in that entire thing and a movie full of them yeah. <laughs> is when they're in, there's just, they're just packed into this, you know, it's a, it's a fairly large boat. It's some sort of ferry or something. Right. And, and they're being carried back to England and a torpedo or something hits them. Right. And they're sinking and they can't, the people can't get out. They can't get yeah. the doors open and you're just watching this happened looks like hundreds of people in the hole just yeah drowning yeah yeah and that talk about a tense Ooh. scene yeah 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 it's pretty awful i mean 
trying to, <laughs> being a navy guy, don't i try not to dwell on the scenes like that too yeah. much <laughs> are are there guys in the navy that obsess with like war movies and like you got to be careful around them cuz you never know no i i it's hard to answer that question i mean I, mean, I think it depends. You know, it depends on the war movie. It, it, most most folks who've spent any time in the military, you kind of start to figure out, okay, what are the good, yeah. you know, war genre movies, and then what are the trash ones? And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and then like, I'll, so I'll give you an speaking from experience. On the submarine, we never watched movies about submarines. You you yeah. know you like reasonable. Why would you reason? Why would you do that? It's living my life. I'm I'm already depressed. I don't need a reminder of how much my life sucks by Hollywood. Thank you. What is it, the Hunt for Red October? Or you know, yeah. So I I love the Hunt for Red October. It's one of the greatest movies ever made, all time. Full stop. But there's no way in hell I would watch that while I was assigned to the submarine because yeah. I don't need to watch that. You know. Yeah. Now that I've been off the submarine for several years you know and i grow fonder of the memories and forget all the tough stuff yeah that you know i'm like you can ask my wife i'm like a preacher like <laughs> you need to watch hunt for it october it's the best <laughs> but um that's good we yeah. all need that inner fire driving us the faith in something larger than us that's right even if it's you know the hunt for red Hawks yeah right who's <laughs> that pierce brosnan I think it was wasn't that Connery? It was Sean Connery oh, and yeah. um, and um, Alec Baldwin. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and a num- and um, and um, James Earl Jones and there's actually a lot of Man, great actors. I haven't in there. seen that movie in a long yeah. time. I kind of forgot it's about that. Very old school. Yeah, it's just a great. And Cold War movie. Man, Sean Connery can sound nothing but Scottish. There's just... <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not... Uh, yeah. Uh, he's, he's a fun guy, but I don't think... He plays himself. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that. Yeah. He basically... The casting director was like, can you just play yourself, please? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this is all a great segue into what... I mean, what is it like to be on a sub? Because, I mean, there's such a small percentage of even the naval population that experiences yeah. that much less the population at large. Yeah. What I can't imagine being in a confined space for what months? I mean, yeah. how long months. Yeah. How do you deal with the pressure? Um, it, it's a great, <laughs> oh, I see what you did uh, there. Oh, that was really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's a very, it's, there's no doubt. It's a really tough, uh, line of work. And, yeah. um, it, it, starts in training the training is arduous um so for officers and the engineering enlisted sailors they they go through more about a year of or more a year or more of nuclear power training okay and six months of that is at nuclear power school down in charleston south carolina let's take a quick pause and just make sure sure. our viewership's informed too when when you say nuclear sub we're talking about a nuclear powered sub yes yeah sorry yeah yeah now it's it's a fair point. So every U.S. submarine is nuclear powered. There's a nuclear reactor pro- propelling it. Yes. Whoa. Uh, and that's also true for our aircraft carriers, right? So they're, and, they're, well, all the new ones. Does right? that, that? I guess all the old ones have been retired. Yep. Huh? Yep. Okay. So that is just such that the submarine can stay under the water for almost indeterminate amount of time. That's right. Because so, you don't have to go get go back to get diesel. Yep. Yeah, so okay. the our submarines are limited 
simply by simply by <laughs> the amount of food they can bring out. Oh, right. So, you know, if if we could carry more food, we would stay out even longer. And and frankly, what we often would do is um, you know, we wouldn't let's say we were out and we were running out of food, we would, you know, surface, a tug would come out, hand us over a bunch of food, literally mm-hmm. just toss crates of food over the side. Oh, wow. And then we would go back out. So yeah. no, that's not a port visit. That's Damn. Which a port visit is like a mirage. Yeah, you know, when you're a sailor, port visit's great. I, that's what you live for, right? <laughs> you sign up the, for the navy to see the world, travel and see the world. Yeah, but uh, what is it like being on the submarine? So you know, training is difficult. Um, it's very intellectual, like yeah. highly cerebral training. The systems on board are advanced. They're difficult and complex. And everybody on the ship needs to know how they work to a certain extent. Right. Because if there's an emergency, everybody on the ship has to know how to put out the fire or fix a hydraulic leak or troubleshoot the electronics. So Yeah. Um, Something goes wrong in a sub. It's way more impactful than pretty right. much any place else. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you think about, well, what are submarines built for? They're built for wartime, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, in peacetime, if something breaks, you can come off station and go pull in somewhere and fix it. But in, in wartime, you would be expected to figure it out and yeah. continue wow. with the mission. So Damn. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, so I'll give you a day, you know, a day in the life of Billy Love from this. Yes. <laughs> 2012 to 2014. Anyway, Amazing. Um, some things have changed. Um, but yeah, so when it's the significantly more sunshine <laughs> in your life, hopefully, at, yeah, way more sunshine now. Maybe not in twenty twenty, <laughs> but other, other than that. <laughs> so on the, on the ship, um, when the ship is underway, until twenty fourteen, submarines operated on eighteen hour days. So you would sleep for six hours, you would wake up and stand watch for six hours. Okay, and then you would have six hours of off going. You're off going from watch, and you you know paperwork training drills, whatever. Um, just kind of the, the miscellaneous. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of the day they have since moved to a 24 hour day where it's mm-hmm. the same three part cycle, but now it's eight hours. Um, okay. And that was thanks to some smart people from Naval undersea medicine, something or other who yeah. said, yeah, you really shouldn't mess with a circadian rhythm. It's, it's been around a while and <laughs> you guys aren't going <laughs> to beat it. So, you should get yeah. in line, but anyway. yeah. Do you feel good about? Or do you wish you had been on a twenty-four-hour cycle? Uh, so we went to a twenty-four-hour cycle oh, okay. in my well, last few months. Okay. Yeah, and I was a little torn. There's nothing worse than waking up twice on the same day. You know that yeah. kind of that's a bummer. But um, the eight-hour watches are pretty long. So fair. Okay. You know, but yeah. Um, but yeah. What else? Life is pretty. I mean, it's it's basically like you know you're. You've got take an industrial job. Yeah. You've got paperwork to do and you've got some operations to do with the industrial stuff. Yeah. And you have maintenance to do. Right. And then put that in a really tiny tube and put it underwater. It's the same thing. You know. Yeah. So well. So so how many people were on are on a sub of the class that on the Providence, you said, right? Yeah. I would so the Providence was a Los Angeles class fast attack submarine. Okay. 
Um, so, um, you know, a, a child of the Cold War, uh, Keel yeah. laid in 1985. If I, no, I think she was launched in 85. I forget, you know, Commission 85, <laughs> some, mid 80s, whatever. We'll say 80s, yeah. She was slightly older than me. I'm not going to tell you when I was born, but um, not too much older. Again, astute <laughs> listeners can do some math. Yeah. So, anyway, um, and the Los Angeles class, our ship had about 140 sailors. Okay. So, wow. like 20. 18 officers and and about 120 crew okay yeah that's that's a big operation yeah so you said something that really caught my attention okay <laughs> you said you refer you made the distinction between how the submarine must operate during times of peace and during times of war time yeah during wartime how much because well while i process that i told myself okay wartime means nothing is reliable resources are extremely scarce you gotta figure it out yourself i don't know how how accurate that is but i guess two-part question a is that accurate is or what to you means wartime in terms of preparation and b how much is that drilled into the training of people in the naval academy Hmm. what wartime means and how people should prepare for that. Yeah, it's actually really good. It's almost an existential question for our <laughs> armed forces right now because it's it's evolving. Um, it, sorry to get a little philosophical on you for a pretty specific question, but the way I think about it is, um, you know, obviously there's legalistic definitions of war right Right. you know congress signed the peace paper right or if the president declares something hostile and allows us the use of force then then you enter you know combat mindset but the navy you know so we're coming out of more than 20 years with the global war war on terror and frankly the navy was supporting combat operations and there are people in the Navy who have been in combat in those operations, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. especially, you know, special warfare guys, the SEALs, yeah, or yeah. Uh, explosive ordnance guys, or um, intelligence support, um, and aviators, right? F-18s flying missions over combat zones. Yeah. But the, the Navy proper, like submarines, ships, has not really seen combat since the tanker wars against Iran in the mid-1980s. And before that was Vietnam, and before that, the Korean War. The last time the U.S. Navy has been engaged in large-scale combat was World War II. Yeah. So you can only fight naval combat against a very powerful enemy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in there, a sense, right? Maybe, but um, but sorry, go ahead. Well, to finish the to to finish <laughs> your question, your first question. Um, so, as the U.S. Uh, national security strategy has evolved to begin naming names in in competition with countries like China and Russia, um, there's also an evolving mentality that says. Okay, global war on terror is, you know, it's it's still ongoing, but 
the focus has shifted towards competition with China, especially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so with that, you evolve your thinking where, you know, global war and terror, like a very high end force, the U S military against a very low end asymmetric force. Insurgencies. Right. Insurgencies, totally different requirements and mindsets. Now (laughs) the supremacy of the U S Navy is challenged. And so now we're having to think about how do you fight ships? How do you, how does a ship take a missile hit and continue to fight? Yeah. You know, those are questions that the U S Navy hasn't had to answer in a long time. Yeah. And now is competitive capabilities increase. So when I say wartime, there's a difference between it's all about risk. How much risk are you willing to accept? If it's peacetime, no missiles flying, I'm not willing to tolerate a whole lot of risk because why? <laughs> you know, like there's no need. Right. But when you shift over to combat operations and you want, if you want to win, you have to be willing to accept more risk. So, wow. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. I, I, um, I, I think so, so often when I think about conflict, armed conflict, right. We're recording this in, uh, at the beginning of March, 2022. So, Listeners who are listening to this after will um, probably draw the parallel to the Ukraine-Russian conflict right now. Let's let's be abundantly obvious. The (laughs) Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russian aggression versus Ukraine. Uh, When I think of conflict, and again, I come from a family that is, you know, army military. I often think of ground conflict, Mm -hmm. right? And Navy is always in a support role, right? It's like, you're dropping off Marines, you're, you know, it's materiel, it's bombardment, for, you know, offshore bombardment, it's uh, air support, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I never, I never think about like uh, naval conflict, you yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, it's weird. It's weird for me to start thinking about that. Yeah. It doesn't, I almost can't wrap my head around what that even means. Sure. Well, yeah. If, if I may, uh, conjecturize Ooh, here we go. <laughs> conjecturize it's a real world <laughs> it's a real word <laughs> i mean like so so we already established being at like being at sea is already a completely different world than being on land now imagine being at sea and just having this latent risk 24 7 of oh a torpedo might freaking hit this ship and we might sink. So you're taking like... That's that's sphincter clenching right there. Yeah, I mean, you're taking an experience that is already completely out of like the normal existence of humans and like elevating it to the nth power by introducing like missiles and just total chaos. And so it makes sense that you know, if if the U.S. military and other militaries around the world have not engaged in naval combat for decades, it just makes you wonder. You know, like the the people who have actually been there and seen that and have the experience to know, like truly know how to make their body go through the actions that they need mm-hmm. to go through. Yeah. Those people are starting to retire. They're too old to be in the ships that will fight the coming that hopefully never come naval naval combats yeah it's i mean it's a fair point um and the one thing i would say to that is 
our greatest source of knowledge about about how to fight, how to think about fighting, um, I would argue, comes from our our predecessors who fought World War II, yeah. and and the the reason why is because the technology has changed, but it's the same problem set. You're still fighting over vast distances, the tyranny of distance. Yeah, mm. you know the the logistics train. I mean, if you if you take a close look at how the U.S. did in the Pacific in the first year and a half, two years of World War II, it was abysmal. Yeah, we we couldn't figure it out. It was and it was hard, you mm. know. So the you know we had some pretty pyrrhic victories that um, a lot of a lot of lives lost because things were not well thought out. And mm-hmm. so today, you know, as part of my professional military education that's ongoing, we, we take a very detailed look at the operations that were undertaken during World War II because the lessons are the same. It's the same geography that we're still concerned about. And, right. and um, you know, we're coming out of three decades now where the U.S. has enjoyed total military supremacy, unchallenged. Where you know we got a little complacent that hey we I can communicate yeah. <laughs> with whomever I want whenever I want I don't have to worry about getting jammed I don't have to worry about not knowing my position everything's synchronized and coordinated guess what it, it's pretty cheap to jam GPS these days and to jam communications and yeah. okay well absent communications and GPS where does that put you? back where the technology was in world war two eyes and mm. ears. And, you know, so yeah. it's, wow. it's pretty interesting. Um, and, and just planning for that inherent fog. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty crazy, man. Okay. So, so we are <laughs> going to take a break shortly here, right on. but before we do, uh, I wanted to ask the question of, in terms of your current status in the Navy, are you active reserve? Are you retired reserve? A- active reserve. You're active you reserve. Say, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what does that, what does that actually imply for you and like your position in the Navy moving forward? Yeah. So I left active duty in 2017 in order to come to study at Scripps. Okay. And, um, as a, as a captain, as you probably, so, um, maybe you're thinking army ranks. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I am. Definitely so I did, ranks. I left active duty as a Lieutenant, which is the same as a captain in the army, or right? Yeah, because yeah. because the naval equivalent of a lieutenant is an ensign, right? The naval equivalent of an army second lieutenant is an ensign. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So <laughs> I I left as an O three. Um, that I yes. There you okay, go. There yeah. we go. <laughs> so I I resigned my active commission and assumed a reserve commission, and with yeah. that. I joined a unit here in San Diego that does okay. um, uh, supports undersea warfare operations. Okay. So we support um, fleet exercises and other other operations in the Pacific. And so with that, um, at least once a year, uh, usually I go out to Pearl Harbor and support um, the the activities out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's training exercises local here in San Diego with the carrier strike groups I've helped out with. And then, um, part of the Navy reserve is, you know, basically maintaining readiness, being ready for the worst case scenario. That's the point of a reserve, right? Ukraine's a great example of 
you know, their standing army, not so big, but they're able to rapidly draw on a reserve force to shore up their defenses. So the U.S. maintains the same capability. And so for the Navy, you know, yes, things are becoming more competitive in the world, but we are still a nation largely at peace, at least the Navy. And so the Navy doesn't need a 24-7 wartime footing because we're not in a major war. So... Um, but the nation retains that capability. So I think, I forget the numbers. I, I want to say there's like 50,000, at least 50,000 reserve, Navy reserve sailors. I probably have the number wrong. Someone's going to fact check your show and give you one star. <laughs> uh, Sandy, this, this shout out, Sandy Parlier, if you're listening to this, come tell us that we're wrong, please. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on some fact sheet online. But anyway, you know, order of magnitude, 50, 100,000 reserve sailors. And the point is, if if the worst case scenario were to happen and the nation were to go to war, rather than the active duty people who are currently doing some desk jobs, you know, their shore duty, frankly, they would all go forward and they would be manning ships and conducting combat operations. But like the staff and the headquarters functions, very important, but you don't need active duty to necessarily do that. The reserves um, come in and they augment, they augment the staff. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there are certain functionalities of a headquarters that are not being used because we're in a peacetime footing um, that would be stood up in the event of a major conflict. And so when we exercise, we're practicing those, those augmentations. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's what I do now. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking a lot more about Nihon. All right. We're back. Sweet. Time to talk about Japan, Japanese whiskey, and as the educated call it, Nihon. Nihon no whiskey? Nihon no whiskey desu. Hi. Ii desu ne? Ja, kanpai. 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 Kanpai, my friends. Yeah, that hits the spot. That, um, I've never tasted anything like this. This almost, obviously it's whiskey, but it has, <laughs> it has the floral notes that Nihonshu or, or as we know it, sake, mm-hmm. um, has. That's really cool. Yeah. I've never had anything like this before. Wow. You know, I think a lot of these sake distilleries are starting to branch out into whiskey. Yeah. Um, just for the record for our listeners, we are drinking Kikori which is a whiskey made in Japan and it's distilled from rice and pure mountain water in Kumamoto, Japan. Aged for three years. Can I take a peek at the bottle? Do you mind? Sure, go for it. So my my comment about it having floral notes like Nihonshu or sake um, is probably explained by the fact that it's distilled from rice, just like mm. Nihonshu is. Yep. Yeah, and, and and for your listeners, if we're going to talk Japanese alcohol, um, so, you know, you go to a Japanese restaurant in America, 
you order sake, you're going to get what many people call rice wine, right? Mm -hmm. So the word sake, though, in Japanese means all alcohol. So beer, oh. wine, whiskey, you know, rice wine. It's all called sake what? osake, right? Oh. Yeah, sake, alcohol. So asking for sake is like showing up and saying booze. Exactly. Booze. Yeah, in Japan, you're <laughs> like, and they're, they're going to ask you what kind. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so I'm going to refer to, because I suspect we're going to have to distinguish a little bit. I'm going to call it Nihonshu, which means Japan alcohol basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> right which you know it's funny i i think uh and all of our listeners we're, we're gonna we're gonna delve into this more as we continue with our episodes and stuff too you'll, you'll hear a lot more about japanese alcohols but uh i think one of the one of the crazy things to me that i didn't realize until recently is japan is also the largest producer and exporter of shochu in the entire world which you would think it'd be south korea yeah so Shochu is sho so the Koreans call it soju, mm -hmm. and I'm sure a bunch of listeners are like, "Yeah, I've had that headache before." Um, <laughs> <laughs> Too much. There's a lot of sugar in that stuff. Yeah. So so Korea exports or produces soju. The Japanese call it shochu. It's pretty much the same. You know, it's the who's same your fact thing. checker? Your your brother, brother. <laughs> it's it's my dad. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So your dad's yeah. gonna be commenting in, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> uh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but um, yeah. So so they're roughly equivalent. In my, I'm not gonna. Well, I'll tell you. I prefer shochu because um, the Japanese. I haven't really. <laughs> how do I put this? The soju I've drunk in my life. Uh, the circumstances in which they've been drunk haven't been conducive to like, oh, fine tasting of soju, right? And, you know, they've been more of a, a means to an end kind of thing. So whereas in Japan, shochu, uh, there's really nice quality stuff. And um, um, you can ask my wife. I drink it at home regularly just as a nightcap. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, there's a lot of different ways lot of different ingredients that you can make it with so I, yeah. I really like that but yeah it's good stuff what well, was I, the question <laughs> yeah I, I, i'm not sure it doesn't really okay. matter this, we're at the point where questions are, are just not they're not relevant anymore the <laughs> okay. conversation's what's relevant all right right on yeah this kikori i i actually really like this stuff it, this is pretty widely available at least in california okay um and i would uh to our listeners, I would recommend this bottle. I mean, you can pick up a bottle for 35 bucks, maybe 40 bucks. Uh, I think it's in the 40 to 50 range. Okay. All right. I, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's slightly pricier, but as far as Japanese whiskeys goes, that's generally what I would expect to pay for, uh, yeah. a, you know, a, a bottle anyway. A bottle that's, I think, you know, pretty yeah. tasty. I, I think this quality of liquor, you shouldn't expect to pay less than $35 for it. Yeah, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, so so unlike many Japanese whiskeys, this has much less of a scotch influence and much more of a bourbon influence. You yeah. can kind of taste that this is uh, this is aged. I don't know if this is in a Mizunoda oak barrel or not, but uh, you can tell that this is aged a little bit more softly than a lot of the uh, a lot of the scotch inspired Japanese whiskeys. Sure. Are. Yeah. It's so bright, though. 
like yeah. the, the flavor you were calling yeah. it floral which yep. i agree i mean it's all front of the tongue and it just lights up the front of the mouth yeah um quite different to most whiskeys i yeah. think if if i were if i were super wasted i might actually think this is nihon chu yeah fair <laughs> enough you know but i'm not so <laughs> <laughs> we we can work on we that we can get there yeah, yeah. no um it's <laughs> I, i'm really intrigued by like this is a kind of distillery i would be interested in visiting because yeah I've visited, you know, done a couple places on the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky, which I highly recommend yeah. as a bucket list thing. But um, the fact that they use rice as their main grain for producing this, I, 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 I come back to um, a very special family friend of of mine who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was quite the connoisseur of Japanese of Nihonshu. And we asked him, Maeda-san, what is the best Japanese sake, Nihonshu? Mm -hmm. And he smiled and he said, the local one, of course. Yeah, yeah. And mm. his point being... The house the house wine. The ho yeah, yeah, the house wine, right? So his point being, Japan is a large, you know, a lengthy country and many different um, um sources of water and and the rice is different across the region and that's what creates a flavor and and so you know this is from kumamoto which um i'm glad you read that because that place occupies a special place in my heart uh it's very beautiful region of japan um and you know sadly they had a, a terrible earthquake a few years ago mm -hmm. um but just a really incredible part of japan and I've been there a couple times and seen the countryside and the rice production in, in that region. And um, this is great stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, unrelated to alcohol, but the first ever, I think it was the first ever independent political candidate to be elected in Mexico was this guy called Pedro Kumamoto. Who what? was uh, like a unexpected part Japanese, yeah, <laughs> very wow. unexpected guy, and and he he was um, it was a big movement because he was like fresh out of college, and it was mostly like his college friends that were yeah. pushing him and like <laughs> making his campaign. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, when I see Kumamoto in this bottle, I think to this guy who is like. Um, elected to the local senate and right on yeah then according to some people he was corrupted um, yeah well mexican politics yeah you know you could just say politics but <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair yeah. enough but but uh but yeah just you know do you, you think of the actual plays yeah. i think of a dude you think of a dude yeah yeah <laughs> that's funny so so billy your roots in japan run deep so we already yeah. mentioned that you spent part of your childhood in japan yeah you were stationed three years in japan right your wife is from japan true you i mean yeah uh it's funny um you know it was totally unexpected the way things turned out as life seems to be but yeah. um series of events that happened to yeah, us. yeah you know the whole japan thing kind of came out of nowhere it was a towards the end of my time on the submarine and uh uh, like six months out from when you're leaving the ship, maybe nine months, I don't recall exactly, but something comes out called the slate. 
it's a slate of jobs that are available for it's like, it's like the med student draw yeah it really yeah. is it <laughs> yeah. really is it's um and it's a rather cutthroat process Oof, and um you know there's i, I figure maybe a hundred or so junior officers all competing and you know some people are look looking to get back close to where their families might be from others want to party up in you know dc and and some people want to live overseas i didn't really know what i wanted and um a job came open uh, that was in japan that required an interview and so um i talked to my commanding officer at the time tony grayson if you're out there listening thank you um tony convinced me to um to go ahead and apply for this screened job. Yeah. And uh, the job was as a flag aide, which is an assistant to an admiral or in the army or elsewhere. It's called aide de camp, right? Yeah, so right. Same AG, thing. AG, basically. You know, yeah. Uh, of course, being the Navy, we have to call everything differently. So right, yeah. A flag can't, aide. Can't, <laughs> can't overlap so, with the army. That would show that you guys might be friends. Yeah. Agree on things. <laughs> So anyway, you know, I, I interviewed with uh, this admiral out in Japan, and it was, you know, a pretty intimidating experience, um, especially, like, coming from the ship where your whole world revolves around that ship, and you kind of forget that there's a world outside of that ship. You're just so focused and drawn in. And uh, here I am talking to an admiral across the world in Japan, and... Um, and I think I asked, you know, it, it was like a get to know you session and, and just to see if, you know, we could have a good working relationship. And he didn't end up hiring me. He had, he had a good friend of mine in mind, actually, I think for the job. Okay. But he knew that the Admiral across the street from his headquarters was also looking for. Ah, uh, see, this is, this is good. This is good networking. Oh right yeah. Here, yeah. So, so, um, so then my name got tossed over to this other admiral and I had another interview and I think this all happened while we were out to sea uh, off the coast of Florida and we pull in and, you know, get a bunch of emails like Jenkins, where the hell have you been? You know, we've been trying to get a hold of you for two weeks where, you know, what's up? <laughs> You've got to call, you need to call this admiral. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just like this little peon. I don't, Mm. Yeah, who the hell am I to call an admiral? So yeah. um, anyway, I ended up interviewing with this other admiral, and he hired me. And within a couple months, I was on a plane on my way to Japan. Wow. And um, wow. it was kind of funny because during the interview, he had asked something about, you know, why are you interested in coming to Japan? And I told him, well, sir, you know, when I was a, I, I lived there as a little kid when my dad was in. And somehow he had it in his mind that that meant that I knew Japanese. So <laughs> I like, I fly to Japan, I check in and he, he and his wife, very friendly, they came down and greeted me that night at the base hotel. And he was excited. I was there and he was like, and it's great that you know, Japanese. <laughs> and I was like, sir, I don't speak any Japanese. And <laughs> it's kind of like, What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my so, god that's, oh, a that's a stressful conversation yeah i'm sitting man. there like am i fired <laughs> you know is that <laughs> is that it was that my grand tour as a flag aid but no it, it was 
um, we had a great working relationship. I'm still in touch with him and his family. That's and, amazing. And, and oh. Just a great tour. So yes, it's, yeah. it's so relieving whenever I hear that someone is still in touch with a person who is their superior at work, yeah. like oh, yeah. years or decades after having left that job, because that just, I mean, that's so special, right? To, yeah. to be in that position where someone else has power over you and what you do every day and to really have that trust and respect the trust to the point that years after, when there is no like concrete, thing that you owe each other to still reach out and still be friendly. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a testament. Um, I mean, that's not true of all leaders, certainly. Yeah. Well, in that case, I wouldn't necessarily call them leaders. A good leader invests in their, in their, especially in their subordinate relationships. And I've been really fortunate that I've had exceptional truly exceptional leaders at every stage of my naval career that um, they've all come from very different backgrounds and have had different impacts in my life. And, and I, I've like, I try to show gratitude without also being like, you know, like annoyingly fanboy. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) There's a sense of don't um, need to stand them too hard. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, they're busy people doing great things in the world. And, um, but, but certainly the idea that paying my respects and, and occasionally seeking guidance because I trust them, you know, and and they've been there and done that. So this actually is a perfect segue into one of the questions we wrote here in the board, which is what can one expect of personal and professional relationships in the Navy versus grad school. Yeah. Because I was different structures. (laughs) I was actually talking to Andrew about this before you got here, but in the past couple of weeks, I had this big realization that in academia and grad school, people skills are not as relevant as they are in the rest of the world, whether you're in business government. I mean, I don't know how, military is but almost everywhere else people skills matter a lot yeah and there's a lot of people in academia with let's call them limited people skills i just want to throw a word in there to to just even narrow it further they're not incentivized in academia Mm, yeah yeah they're yeah exactly and they are in in business you know yeah here's here's how here's what i would say first of all um, to paraphrase, you said that people's skills are not relevant in academia. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm mincing words here. I know that's not how you feel, obviously. That's so wrong. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah you're so, right. You're right. You, so I'll use that as my segue into my philosophy on this. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. People are always the most important thing. And the way I view academia, the way I... Listen up, scientists. (laughs) The the way I view, like, let's let's take a theoretical, you know, let's take a lab, a notional lab. This is non-attributional. This is not my lab. But (laughs) we'll we'll say the lab is the unit, the basic unit. Yeah. And a lab lab is run with a PI, maybe a co-PI, 
a handful of postdocs, you know, maybe 10 or whatever graduate students toiling away on their PhDs. Um, <laughs> toiling. Good word. I like that. You know, and, and so the PhD is a really grueling, arduous process. And I, I, I think about this a lot. Why is it grueling and why is it arduous? The work itself is not that hard. Like, I wake up, I take the bus into scripts, I open my laptop, and I type on a keyboard. <laughs> you know, like, that's not that's not that hard, right? <laughs> like, that's I mean, uh... going through the motions... <laughs> I'm not I'm not operating a nuclear reactor. I'm not shipping weapons through a torpedo tube. Dude, know? I'm gonna be honest. Some days when I'm typing, I'd I'd rather operate a nuclear reactor. Well, yeah, don't get me wrong, me too. You know, but I'm I'm not I'm not flying an aircraft, I'm not handling a weapon, I'm not driving a ship. I know? can I can see thousands of grad school students going into a existential crisis <laughs> after hearing well, that. Well, hang on. I'm not but I, I agree. I agree 100%. I'm, but I'm not done yet. So let me get to the punchline, right? So the punchline is the reason it's so arduous. Yes, I'll have some more. Thank you, Andrew. The reason it's so arduous is because we are entirely within our brain. We are inside yeah. our mind and we are, yeah. we are, we are constantly pushing the boundaries of our own understanding. We're confronting our limitations of knowledge and confidence. And, you know, you hear this a lot. This is the entire, I would argue the root of the problem of imposter, uh, imposter syndrome. Like I don't actually belong here. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, which every single PhD student has. And, and I would say it's not just PhD students. I think it extends beyond. I'm sure. I'm sure. And and this is why investing time and attention in people is so important. Yeah. So we we are not everybody signs up for a PhD, you know. Not uh, it's a big deal. It's a big commitment. Yeah. You're basically signing up and saying, "You know what? The person me 6 years from now is still going to be invested in this commitment." <laughs> and and I look back to where who was I and what was I doing 6 years ago? Um, I mean, holy cow, vastly yeah. different place, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. that's a big deal, and that requires an, a tremendous amount of mental fortitude to stay confident and true to what you're doing, and mm-hmm. and we and we need help, we need the support, you know. So um, being a PI is not, in my mind, being a PI is not a secondary task, nor is it a kind of an annoyance, nor is it uh, an obligation. You know, well, it is an obligation, but it's it's an obligation because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, you are literally investing in somebody's career. You, as a PI or a senior scientist or whatever, you hold a unique amount of mm. leverage over somebody's trajectory. That leverage could yeah. be professional opportunities, or it could be how do you feel today. You know, this has been a rough week, you know, (laughs) Russia invaded Ukraine and we're talking about nuclear deterrence theory, something we haven't talked about in since, you know, the cold war. And you have an entire generation of people who are totally unfamiliar with this territory that we're entering. 
and you know, and COVID, you know, and and <laughs> global pandemic. The pa- yeah, right. that so wasn't expected. The pandemic. People and, don't know how to deal with that. And civil disorder, the 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 attack on the Capitol, and and racially driven uprisings. Like like this has been a pretty unsettled mm. few years here, and I think we'd say decade at this point, or decade. You know, I mean. The world order as we know it has kind of been fracturing and crumbling. And newsflash, for people studying their PhDs, they tend to be pretty smart and observant. And regardless if you're one of those, oh, I don't read the news, sure. But Uh, but, do those people exist anymore? uh, Sorry, yes, go ahead, continue. (laughs) You know, yeah, but but, um, my point is spending a little time to ask somebody who's your subordinate essentially in a research organization. Um, Are you okay? And what, what can I be doing Mm. to better enable you or support you? So it's not just conferences. It's not just papers. It's gotta be a more holistic approach. Um, You know, in the Navy, it's way more intrusive, you know, as a (laughs) Naval officer, I was asking my junior sailors, the, the younger guys like, yeah, what, mostly myopic. I don't want to have to go pick somebody up out of jail on a Saturday night because I want to be enjoying my Saturday night. But, you know, it's like, what are your plans this weekend? You know, do you have my phone number if you get drunk and you need a ride? You know, Mm. in the Navy, it's it's far more intrusive um, because the mindset being if somebody is having an issue, they're not focused on work. And if they're not focused on work, accidents happen, people get hurt you know, it's hard for them to focus on the mission. So especially on a submarine. Yeah. Lower stakes in research, I will grant, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but not less important Yeah. because it's our career. It's our trajectory for our career. And, um, you know, trying to give people a supportive and nurturing environment, you know, I, Maybe I'm a hugger, but also I can be pretty harsh, you know, in my own approach. But I believe firmly in supporting people. You know, if yeah. if I adopt a harsh leadership technique on a particularly particular individual, it's not permanent and it's meant to bring them up to speed or to get them somewhere they need to be. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not out of vindictiveness. It's not because they annoy me. Um, so, yeah, I just think. I've been talking for a while. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I yeah, please. I, I, let me this finish is, with one thing. This is why you're here. The, let me, I'll, I'll finish with one thing. So us. Learn my, us. Yeah, I will learn you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing, so being a leader within your lab, you're, you know, you're a PI. You were, mm. we don't show up as PhD students knowing what to research, knowing (laughs) how to research. We need mentorship and we look up to our PIs. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like I feel fortunate in that I showed up and I think I forgot how old I was, 30, when I showed up to Scripps. I've already been (laughs) humiliated throughout my career. I'm going to be honest. I felt old when I showed up at 25. Yeah, you know, I I already knew how to get over myself and ask for help. So. Like, I, you know, like, hey, I have no idea what you're trying to teach me right now. Can you, like, what's, there's, like, a Reddit thing. Like, explain, explain, like, I'm five or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. You know, so I'm that guy. And I have no shame in asking that way. But 
if you're a 21 or 22 year old grad student, yeah. Noah, how old were you when you showed up? Oh, I showed up at 21, and let me tell you, I was an arrogant son of a bitch. You, yeah, <laughs> classic, uh, classic. <laughs> that's a classic 21 year old straight out of undergrad, man. Of course, yeah. of course you were, because what else could you have been? Yeah, there well, just wasn't another option, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember seeing you the first. It was. It was at the Coast Apartments, and uh, oh yeah, there was that grill out that we had for our cohort. Oh, Magical the, cla- night. the pre-COVID, oh, man. man. Yeah, pre-COVID get-togethers. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I remember, I remember marking you. I was like, "Gotta watch out for this guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! But, I was, um, yeah, that was all good. That was pretty funny. Um, you know, so but there are some folks who show up to a grad program who don't have the experience or the skills to be able to set boundaries with the all-powerful advisor, right? Or to be able to communicate what they need. And, and at sometimes at like when I was a 21 year old, sometimes I didn't even know what I needed. Right. So it, the only reason that I was successful in my naval career at that age was because I was surrounded by leaders who cared about. Yeah. My, the, uh, the infrastructure profession. and the people were yeah. ready yeah. to support you. Right. Yeah. And let me just make a little point here. You said, like, as grad students, we need we need to be able to set boundaries with advisors. Often, I think we don't realize that it, that boundaries are in both ends yeah. of the yeah. path we walk. Absolutely. We often think that boundaries with an advisor means that we cannot let our advisors work us to the bone. But it also means that we cannot let our advisors neglect us for months, which happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. At least at scripts. Oh, like an embarrassing lot. Yeah. I don't think that's limited <laughs> to scripts. I think that's, a, that's endemic I, yeah, to I've, academia. I, I've talked to PhD students around the world who face the same challenges. And, you know, there, in the military, there is absolutely an incentive to have good leadership. Right. Because that's how you get promoted. That's well, that's how you get promoted, <laughs> but it's it's a it's it's an evolution thing. I mean, if you're in combat and you have a bad leader, your bad leader will squander lives. Yeah. A good yeah. leader knows how to balance risk. A good leader knows how to play to each team member's strengths. Yeah. And to be able to do that, you have to know your people. Yeah. You have to know yeah. what motivates them, what drives them, what makes them tick. Yeah. What are their weaknesses? What are their strengths? You know, I, the other way I look at this is if you're a PI and you have graduate students, if you're neglecting them, it's, it's frankly a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. this is mm-hmm. the next generation. It's not that far in the future that this, this young 22-year-old Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed person is going to be graduating yeah. with a PhD, going to work as a postdoc in somewhere else, or you know, eventually they are going to take on the mantle of leadership somewhere. Yeah. Maybe they will be working at your funding agency. You know, right. like <laughs> okay. And so here's here's where Andrew changes seat positions and prepares his rant. Let's so. Hear it. So this is, this is what I meant by academia does not incentivize leadership. So, I mean, the wartime example for the military, yes, totally right. You, you know, you lose people if, if there's not leadership. 
I mean, there's the promotion aspect as well. But okay, in academia, I'm going to start with an anecdote here. So uh, there's been a lot of conversation at Scripps in particular around the ethics requirement and the ethics course. And uh, shout out to Ali Ho, if you're listening, you're doing great work. If you're not listening, everybody go who knows Ali Ho, go like congratulate her on the excellent work she's doing along with Wemis on yeah. reforming the ethics course because there. I remember getting into an argument with the teachers of the ethics course around whether or not teaching was incentivized in an academic context. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, they argued it was because if you got really good reviews, you could potentially be up for a slightly faster promotion. And my, my <laughs> repost to that was, are there consequences? Mm. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is what I mean by incentives. People think of incentives as positive effects only. And that's, that's not right. Incentives are both the carrot and the stick. Yeah. And in academia, there is no stick for being a bad teacher, a bad advisor, there. A, a sh- an absolute shithead to other people or collaborators yeah. or your students. There, there's, an, there's an absence of a carrot at, at worst. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and... and yeah, I mean, for teaching in particular, it feels like there's really just no consequences whatsoever. But, I mean, for being a bad advisor, right, there's there's really nothing that happens, right? Your yeah. funding doesn't disappear, yeah. right? The university never really sees it or anything like that. You just get a bad reputation, but there's yeah. always a way right. to work around it and still get students. There's always somebody who will be desperate enough to work with you. Yep. Is what I've learned. And... And that is that is truly devastating. And I think it, it does, not only does it do academia a disservice, but it does, it does humanity a disservice. And I think you could say like it does the United States a disservice, but it's more than that, right? I, I, I fundamentally deep down believe that scientific progress is human progress. Yeah. And, and engineer. And when I say scientific progress, it's because I'm a scientist, but that's, <laughs> that extends to engineering, that extends sure. to yeah. so, social sciences, that extends to humanities, that extends to the arts, like progress in all of these things, exploring new spaces, finding new media, finding new frontiers that pushes us forward as a species and pushes us to become better. Or at least ask new questions. Yeah. And that's, and that's how we get better. I, I genuinely believe that. And when we don't, especially in the context in which we are supposed to be pushing human knowledge, that is what academia is. That's what research is supposed to be. When we don't foster that environment, we are actively dissuading the propagation of the species. Mm. Ooh. That's my, oh, yeah. that's my two cents. I like how you okay. tie it to the existential. Damn. <laughs> I mean, it all that's what it all comes yeah. back to, man, for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think um you know, I, I so something I think a lot about in in the in the navy anyway, you're expected to do all these things to promote, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's been increasing conversations about yeah, but all these things don't actually make us better warfighters or you know, what if you have the one guy who's the best guy at flying an aircraft and like he's yeah. not good at anything else in the Navy that the Navy wants him to be? Why would you why would you 
if he if he doesn't fit in the mold, why would you get rid of that guy? He's an expert. Right. And so, you know, I think about it in academia, you have a lot of people who enter academia or research or whatever right? who really didn't enter it in order to train students. They yeah. entered it in order to do research. And so because that's I wish what you do up to that. Point. Right. Yeah. And like <laughs> I, I just I kind of wish there was ideally there would be an infrastructure or an organization in place that says, OK, for those of you who want to do research and train students. Yeah. This is a place for you. Yeah. For those of you who have who don't want to have anything to do with students, you know, this is a place for you. Yeah. So talking about liquor, um, a few minutes ago, can I have the bottle again, please? Yeah, absolutely. Let me pour Billy right, a, yeah. a, a dram here. So we were drinking Kikori, um, which, which was aged for three years, made out of rice and Kumamoto. We talked about it. And now we are switching over to a different brand of Japanese whiskey. Togochi. Togochi. And let me just, there's, so this is a very interesting looking bottle. It kind of looks like compressed air. Yeah. Or some sort of gas a tank. A scuba tank. A, sh- um, a short, oh, a short. This is, steel, this is quintessential Like a Japanese steel 80. Whiskey. And, steel well. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, Maybe a steel sixty. <laughs> I don't know. Did they make this? That's eh, seven hundred. I'm sorry, Noel. We'll <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> well, I just want to. I just want to read what's on the label because it's so enigmatic. You're gonna read the French or the English? Uh, the, the French, and I'm gonna translate. Do you to speak English French? On the flight. Yeah. Oh, get the hell out of here! It is. It is a Noel's. Is. Noel's a borderline polyglot. I think. I mean, uh, you, you speak uh, <laughs> for English, those of you Spanish, who don't French. speak whistling means of course. <laughs> oh, okay. <Yeah. laughs> for those of you who don't know what a polyglot is, it means you're fluent in six languages. I thought um, no. meant shut the. F- up. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't no. know what whistling means, I, I, it, shut the. F- it means it's the same thing as choo. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm not fluent in six languages. It's it's four. Um, but anyway, so this label says, (laughs) (laughs) it says the thoughts of Pascal chapter two, misery of man without God, 71, too much and too little wine. Don't give him any. He cannot find the truth. Give him too much wine either way. Wow. Humanity. That's um, that's pretty intense, and I'm plunging into my own existential crisis right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what this podcast is about. We don't we don't actually do profiles. We do existential crises. Only. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. This only ends when you're in tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell someone was like really looking down, looking down the barrel, seeing through the eye of the Man. eye of the needle yeah. when they wrote that label. I, I, um, I, I'm going to have to reread that. That's pretty impressive, though. Um, <laughs> I love the line that just says 71. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Dude, how's your, how's your kanji? Because there's no English on here. I, I'm it's, gonna French, have to, it's French and... Uh, and kanji. Well, I yeah, mean... No. We I got know, katakana, we got hiragana, and we got kanji. I know where the... I know exit, because it looks like a little man trying to... Like, he's freaking out and needs the exit. <laughs> I mean, I got my like hitos and my. I know, uh, I know tree because it looks like a tree. 
Yeah, I know. Fair. I know forest because it's like three trees. <laughs> I got a I got a little getsu here, but my, I got a yama. I man, my kanji. Yo, kanji's hard. Yeah, the umami, the smokiness umami, mm. and the complexity of this whiskey is just oh, off the charts. Oh yes, yeah. I have just been transported. Yeah, right? this this shit is, is the quintessential Japanese whiskey to me. I feel like um. I feel like I've just come in from a day of skiing in the Japanese Alps. Ooh. This is this is something else. Yeah. So so you know, I was gonna save this for the chaser, but mm. fuck it, let's do it now. So <laughs> this is not a family friendly podcast. Um, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I think you can often tell about the the way one of the one of the surefire ways to tell if a Japanese whiskey is going to be authentically Japanese in character. It's how bad the English translation is. <laughs> we talked about this with uh, with mezcal and tequila too. Oh sure, yeah. right. The worse the, the worse the design is, the better your tequila is going to be, yeah. or the yep. more authentic it's going to be. With Japanese whiskey, it's it's the translations. Interesting. I mean, we've yeah. got we do have some English on the back here. So to be clear, on the front it says Togochi Japanese whiskey, Japanese blended whiskey, and then we've got some katakana, which is their classic, you know, whiskey. Yeah. And uh, presumably whiskey. this kanji is Togochi. And then it's got age three years. But then this verse, you know, that Noel just read, he translated it from French. It's on French and, and in Japanese yeah. on the front. And then on the back, we've got English. Oh, okay. So we've oh. got three languages on here. So and I just flex without need. Yeah, as you should. It's like a total flex then. Yeah. There is there's no rhyme or reason to languages here. Our fonts are all over the fucking place. Well, you know why, though. Uh, I it's, mean... it's. So if French and Japanese are on one side, that that label was likely slapped on in Japan. Right. And then when it got to the US, whatever they company did is, they did all the legalese. Yep, exactly. Right. Which yep. is you've got your spirits distilled from grain, three years or more old. I mean, these yeah. are all legal ramifications. Don't in drink the United if you're States, pregnant. You you yeah, know, yeah. Forty percent alcohol by volume, Japanese blended whiskey, government warning, produced by Chigoku. Oh man, Chigoku Jozo Company. In Sakurao. Uh, whoa. I don't even know where this is. Oh, it's it, it's from Hiroshima. Hiroshima? Yeah. Ooh. That's where my wife lived for um, three years. Oh, really? In, wow. Instantly, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is some... You know, earlier we were talking about how... Or there's a discussion during the break about how we all like to drink our whiskey. And, Billy, you said that you like to add two or three drops of water to your whiskey to take the edge off. Yeah. So when we were drinking the Kikori, I tried it out just to see what it did. And so we actually have a dropper right here on the table. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew's prepared. Yeah. So at all times. I, I had my whiskey. I first, I tried it without additional water. Then I add three drops. And it's impressive. You know, some people say... They can't tell the difference between like cheap and like expensive wine sure. or whatever. But take a glass of whiskey, add three drops of water. It opens up the aroma for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And for this Kikori, what it did, it took the flavor from the tip of my tongue to the middle of my tongue. It was Ooh. it was quite okay. a difference. That's a nice way to describe it. Yeah. The um I've got a let me tell you a story about the single drop of water. So Yes. I please. was this 
probably this was 2016 february 2016 uh i had a four or five day weekend it was over president's day and my boss i think was yeah (laughs) my boss was um was i think he was stateside or something this is in japan you know i was an admiral's aide at the time so I had about a week away from the boss and I took a, the opportunity to fly. Good feeling. Yeah. I took the opportunity to fly up to Hokkaido yeah. to go skiing. I mean, world-class skiing in Hokkaido. Truly, right? truly world-class skiing. Yeah. And, um, but on my way up there, uh, I, I flew into Hachinoe, which is a very interesting historical city in Hokkaido. Um, for students of Japanese modern history, it was the uh, site of the end of the Japanese Civil War around 1871 okay. or two. Your dad can fact check that. <laughs> that it's Sandy, like, you've you've been given a job. It's in like your actually, it's like really comforting to know that somebody's got my back right now. <laughs> you just think that whether um, <laughs> whether or not it's going to happen is up in the air. Right? Okay, so so Sandy, you can Google the Battle of Hachinoe. Um, but it was basically the shogunate forces against the imperial forces of Japan. This was the end of the Edo period. It, it was the it was the catastrophic end of the Edo period, where yeah. the shogun had ruled Japan absolutely for for over two hundred years, right? Uh, like two hundred fifty years, which started immediately after the expulsion of the missionary. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, it, uh, yeah, exactly. So. Um, so Shogun is losing power. You can thank Commodore Perry, U.S. Navy, for <laughs> for the, being the catalyst of this, right? But bottom line, Japan opened up, and not everybody was on board. Yeah. And and really, a lot of the power dynamics were such that the people who fought the modernizing forces, that like a lot of these these fighting forces were the same uh, families that had been slighted during the previous warring states period in the 15 1600s Classic, and over man. 200 years they remember they didn't forget yeah <laughs> so anyway you had a, the japanese civil war um and um it ended in hachinoe there is a large western built star fort there where the rebels retreated to and the imperial navy and army assaulted and and all that's still in hachinoe hachinoe is a beautiful very interesting city um, it's, it's on an, uh, isthmus and, um, and it was one of the first Western settlements in Japan post Japan opening up. Okay. So there is a, there's a Russian settlement. There is a British settlement. There's an American, uh, settlement. And these were like trade wow. missions. Yeah. They were trade and religious is, is missions. This on the nor- is this on the South end of Hokkaido or is this on the North? Yeah. End on of, the uh... very South end of Hokkaido. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, um, in, anyway, you know, very interesting city and Hokkaido was not, it was not settled until the late 1800s in general. Right. The, J- uh, the empire of Japan, you know, previously the shogunate, had not really developed Hokkaido. Hokkaido is home to a lot of indigenous people, actually, called the Ainu people. And so the Ainu, you know, very similar plights of indigenous people mm-hmm. around the world, um, the, the people from mainland Japan began settling it, this island of Hokkaido, you know, a lot of issues over land rights and, and control. But 
Um, anyway, when the West the West showed up, so there's actually a really interesting square, uh, like four blocks in Hachinohe. You have a Roman Catholic church. You have an Eastern Orthodox church. You have a synagogue. I, I think I, it's something. I forgot what it was. I think it was a synagogue or something. And then you have a Buddhist. No, I think it was a Shinto temple. And then you had a Buddhist temple. Yeah. So you have four major religions all across the street from each other. Um, <laughs> I'm just like to acknowledge the don't, fact that Andrew has the hiccups right don't, now. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's very distracting. Don't, the don't alcohol level is too high. Let's just, just yeah. continue, continue <laughs> with your anecdote. So um, anyway, I, I traveled to Hachinoe, this beautiful city. There's all these different types of churches. Yep, very, yeah. very diverse, you know, historically diverse place. There was a bar that I ventured into, and I was in search of the 2014. Uh, um, ah, crap! I'm, I'm blanking. Hang on a second. Nika. It was like 2014. Nika. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh huh. The or the 2015. Nika. It's the one that won the international. Was it's their it's their coffee filter. Right. Yeah, it's a coffee still. Yeah, and uh, it's it's brewed in um, in. Um, it's the uh, Yoichi. Uh, Yoichi is where their distillery is. It's it, they call it like is this the one that's that they call Takatsudu? Yep, that's yeah. it. Yeah, and it, I, I if the I, black label. Yeah, and I think it was their seventeen year. So they yeah. won like an international Scotch competition. Oh, Nika's. To all to all of our listeners, Nika, always quality. My favorite, always. my yeah. favorite Japanese whiskey distillery. I've been I'm, I've been to their distillery twice. Am I drunk or did I hear the with the word coffee? Well, so C O F F E Y. Oh, C O F F. It's not the it's not the bean caffeinated bean. Yeah, it's a, it's I was a, confused by that too. It's a type <laughs> of it's a type of still and distillation process. Okay, and and, and filtering process too. But yeah, uh, so to all of your viewers out there, <laughs> I just like saying that <laughs> to all of our viewers. <laughs> If you call PBS right now, you can get this copy of this document. <laughs> no, um, so the Nika, the Nika Distillery, the Yoichi Distillery, is about an hour out of town from Sapporo, Hokkaido. Yeah, and it's just a must visit. It's a beautiful drive. It's a beautiful facility. <sighs> Gotta go, man. They've got a great. They've got a great museum. And uh, you can pick up nice bottles of, of whiskey. Um, and if you're a skier, you know, what what do ski tickets go for these days in the U.S.? Like $180 you want, you want for the a honest day? Answer? Yeah. Okay. So in Vail, wow. there's off-peak and peak periods. So being from Colorado, I am aware of these things at least as of yeah. a couple of years ago. Yes. Off-peak, 160 plus for a day. Yeah. Fuck peak, that. Vail, you'll hit 200 plus yep. for... Beaver Creek, you'll be in the 180, 190 range. For Breck, 160. That, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Copper, yeah. similar. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a, a lift ticket in Japan, you should definitely edit this out so none of your listeners go crowd out the mountains in Japan. <laughs> but a, a lift ticket at the, one there, of the so. world's premier resorts at Niseko is... About, I think it paid like $65, $70 for a day. God damn, dude. That would get me skiing again. Yeah. It's, Holy it's, shit. And, and this is, Niseko is like one of the best in the world. 
Yeah. But all of Japan has phenomenal powder. Dude, the yeah. mountains aren't very tall, but incredible powder coming right off the sea of Japan. You go for a week and that'll make up for your airfare. Yeah. Yeah. I assume Seriously. also hotels are cheaper in Japan than in the U.S. Because they're so expensive here. Yep. So you can definitely find yourself a Japanese guest house, which is the way to go. Their hotels, are, their nice hotels are expensive, but stay in a Japanese guest house. Mm. It's like a hostel, but better. And the host kind of takes care of you. And um, you can sit and you, you come in after, after a day of skiing, you ski down to the village. And guess what? You get to sit in the hot springs. Yeah. I mean, you, there's yeah. some cities. Classic. you yeah, boy. Like, there's Classic. one place in Yamagata province. I would ski uh, Zao Onsen. I would ski into the village uh, around lunchtime, and I would go sit in the onsen, the bath, for like yeah. 15 minutes and just kind of loosen up and relax. And then I would go get lunch and keep skiing the rest of the day. Oh, my you God. You know, like... It's, it, it's oh just, my god yeah you're not gonna get your typical apres ski where you're you know you're drinking with euro techno and stuff and right like there's a time and a place for that don't get me wrong i like my edm but um <laughs> if it means cheaper lift tickets and and oh like god. and like free hot springs yeah i count oh, in, so. free hot yeah. springs so all that is the way god wanted it all this to say there's a bar in hachinoe that i went to the guy had the uh, Taketsudu um, um, yeah. 17 year from 2014 or whatever. And I paid a stupid amount of money for it. I'm sure. And he asked me, like, how do you want it? And I said, what is the correct? There's only one correct yeah, answer. You're telling me how I you want it. You tell me. And like, this is a kind of bar. This is a beauty of Japan. Mm. They know their bars. They mm. know how to run a bar. Nice. This guy was in, wearing like a, a bow tie, you know? I mean, this guy knew what he was doing and he was like, okay, I know what to do. And, and he whips out this special Ooh. long, like golden spoon. Oh yeah. And he dips it into this, this purified water. And the spoon contains like precisely <laughs> one drop of water. <laughs> and he pour, he just, this is so Japanese. He pours it into my this. glass of, of of Takitsu uh, and and that was and like that was and it was remarkable you know it was wow. delicious so you know sounds so good you know when you're traveling it's so worth it to just splurge on a couple special things here and there very true actually this morning I was listening to the latest Chaser episode Chaser number six okay uh, between Andrew and I. I'm sorry, I'm behind or, on my editing. By the way, we've got we've got quite a few in the tank. We need to put oh, out. It's uh, all good. So I'll see you guys in two years. Got it. <laughs> okay, not that far. I, I'm not that far behind. You're like my photos on my computer right now. Got it. <laughs> I promise, I'm not that far behind. <laughs> so it, in that chaser, I, I I tell the story of buying a cup of coffee for twenty four dollars. <laughs> Where was this? This was in Taiwan. What world barista championship winner? Oh yeah, yeah. I'd probably it's, pay for that. Is the recipe yeah. that won the the trophy for the best coffee yeah. in the world in yeah. 2016? 
So, you know, I was there. I was like, there's no way I'm not getting yeah, it. Yeah, what, yes. what are you going to do, not pay you, that? Like, Well, you can easily forego your five Frappuccinos from Starbucks for the week to, <laughs> yeah. to buy yourself the Taiwanese top coffee in the world, for exactly. sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that just goes to say, when you're traveling... You know, be careful. Be careful with your money. Like, as far as it means, don't get bamboozled. Yeah, yeah. But if you're convinced you're in front of something special, and if there's not some salesperson just pushing it towards you, yep, telling you right. it's special. Yep. If there's a salesperson telling you it's special, it's, it's not. No, special. It's not yeah, special. Right. Secret for It'll you. It'll speak for itself. If it yeah, is. exactly. Yeah, it'll speak for itself. And if you see it, and if you see it shine, and if it's special, just take a deep breath. Yeah. Putting in the money is going to be worth it. It, yeah. it will be worth it. It's definitely worth it. Yeah. You know, Japan is full of surprises and it's such a, the people are so warm and welcoming and you will discover such subtlety in everything, whether you buy a souvenir at a shop and the way that they wrap it up for you. Yeah. It's like such care. Yeah. Like, (laughs) why are you, you know, why are you doing this? And, and it's like, you know, it's, well, the, the question is why wouldn't I do this? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I got to say coming back to America, it was a little hard leaving that behind this idea that, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't important, you know? Um, now, obviously that, <laughs> that can get exploited by corporations like, you know, and, and well, and Japanese work culture has yeah. done that to the nth degree. Right. That's a whole nother yeah. podcast. And I'm sure there's great podcasts out there about yeah. that. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to anybody who's talking about work culture issues in Japan. Yeah. You know, I, um, but that being said, like when you're, when you're exploring the countryside and you know, you kind of run in, it's a country where you can learn a lot and be challenged in your assumptions and yeah. be challenged to slow down a little bit and really appreciate the detail in things. And uh, the Japanese just have this beautiful way of doing that. You yeah. know, when you're in a rush, it's kind of frustrating. Like, yeah. just give me the damn souvenir. Like, I got a ca- <laughs> I got a train to catch, but, um, you know. <laughs> yeah i i mean so one of the things that like i just to all of our to all of our listeners you know something i wish i could do more of is is travel you know and uh there are ways to do it on a budget and conferences have to work and yeah <laughs> conferences real if you're a yeah. scientist yeah get get your funder to pay for those conference travel fees but it, it really is super valuable to just go experience new things and travel Travel doesn't even have to be to Japan, to someplace, yeah. you know, yeah. 15,000 kilometers away from the, you know, from California. <laughs> it's not that bad, but. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty long flight. And Same order of magnitude. It's fairly expensive, yeah. you know. But like, you know, even traveling to different states and stuff, it, it really does open the mind and it opens the eyes and you get to experience new things. Yeah. And it, it, counts, it counts for a lot. There's plenty of quotes out there that I'm sure half of them are misattributed anyway. Uh, but yeah. you know, travel, travel, um, travel is such a teacher. You know, just being it requires it forces you into humility. Yeah, it really. And does. and if you don't 
do it with humility, you're doing it wrong and Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to enjoy yourself. But, you know, it's uncomfortable because everything's different. Practically everything's different. But um, if you really, if you can figure out the practical points and focus on, you know, the differences and, and, you know, the pros and cons of those differences. It helped, you know, three years in Japan, like, like I say, I had trouble coming back to the U S and different vibes for sure. Totally different vibes, you know, from the fact that I couldn't take mass transit wherever I pleased. I had to get in the car. I I really resented that actually. Mm. Um, Whereas in Tokyo, I could hop on a train and be anywhere I wanted any time of day meet whomever I wanted, you know, it was, it was very straightforward in Japan. And the fact that we don't value that as a nation, you know, that, that was, that was frustrating when I came back Yeah, and, you know, choose your, choose your allegory. Right. So, um, but, but <laughs> this then isn't a choose your own adventure. This is choose your own allegory. Yeah. Choose yeah. your allegory. But, 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 you know, there were things that I appreciated when I came back, you know, I, I, so on the one hand, I love that J- Japanese society values harmony, right? You people are willing to give up their individual comfort for the good of society. Yeah. Well, of course, they take it to the nth degree, and it's like, There's well, it's pretty, that, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of harmful if you don't have some boundaries, right? So, yeah. you know, whereas in America, like, <laughs> We you know, common that, sense yeah. be damned. It's all about me and my rights and my freedom, you know, like, <laughs> like, so there's gotta be a happy medium somewhere. And I hope it's in New Zealand cause that's where I want to retire someday. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, I'm looking for that average. Where's the average value between these two societies? I don't know. Well, Let me know if you find it. Cause uh, I'd be interested. <laughs> listeners. You can call in at, uh, I have no fake phone number to give you. Yeah. But we are we are running low on time, so so oh, this is a, this is a great place on which to end it. But okay. um, one one more question. All right. Before we leave our heroes, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the list behind you. I'm yep. like, well, which one is oh, it going to be? We oh, didn't go not, through It's much not of any it. of these. All right. Yeah. Okay. This, good. This is this is just brainstorming. Suggestions. Got it. It's yeah. suggestions for for good conversation. I'm uh, glad we didn't get to the bottom one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's too that's, much of a like, folks. The, the bottom one says Navy yeah. plus politics. And, yeah, uh, I'm not going there. Yeah, we. we nice we'll, try. We'll, co- we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it in the future. Nice try. We'll, ha- we'll have Billy back and we'll yeah. interrogate him further. Um, okay, so so what was to to leave our heroes? What is the one or you know one phrase, one piece of advice that you would give to graduate students? not necessarily studying oceanography, but just graduate students in general in order to be able to succeed. That's a pretty heavy one. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's kind of like three things coming into my brain. Can I do three? You can absolutely do three. I promise not to go on a 20 minute thing. Dude, go on your 20 minute tangent. (laughs) I got enough battery for that. We're good. Um, one is have confidence in yourself. You've, you've gotten as far as you have for a reason. And some, you know, like at Scripps, some of the world's preeminent scientists have seen promise in you. 
So don't forget that. They, they wouldn't have accepted you if they didn't see promise in you. So have a sense of confidence. <laughs> yeah. So many I people know. apply. I'm over here in my feelings. Yeah, right. Like Damn. have confidence in what you've accomplished and what you are working on. Um, I, you know, it's so easy, especially you look at a PhD, six years. It's hard enough doing a master's degree. They call it a master's degree for a reason. Um, and, it, you know, I maybe I'm talking specific to tech. I don't know, you know, STEM. But have confidence in your abilities and don't sell yourself short. Um, and if you find that your advisor is not treating you the way that you thought you were going to be treated, you know, if, if it's outside the bounds, then consider finding a new fucking advisor, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I mean, yeah, good advice. Fuck that, That's you know, really good walk advice. away from it. You're, you are worth, you know, people are very complex and it, and it's, you know, not everybody's going to work together, you know, well, yeah. And that's just a fact of life. Yeah. So, people are different. um, the second thing I would say, what was the question? Advice for new grad students. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing I would say is if, um, you know, it, it requires discipline of thought, but divorce yourself from your ego mm. and attempt to evaluate where you are and be honest about where you are. Self-assessment. So God damn if something if if you're working on you know whether it's research if it's not working or if your relationship isn't working with your advisor or if the decision to to do your phd is not working then do something else you know like it's the the phd is not sure our society ascribes importance to it but it's not the most important thing in your life. Yeah. If it don't make money, it don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> we may have digressed a little bit with that one, but I love uh, it. Yeah. No, I'm just saying if it's not if it's not going well, you gotta you gotta tweak it. Yeah, you know, it, it's like it's so easy when you're not the person in the arena, you know, when you're not the focus, it's very easy to to look at somebody else's situation and be like Oh yeah, you're being an ass, like dumbass. Like just do this, <laughs> you know. Like quit your PhD and yeah. go make four hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, like <laughs> you know. I mean, that's we wish. Yeah. Ugh. Well, but but you could you could talk your money, daddy. You could bamboozle yourself into some ridiculous <laughs> salary. Yeah. You could do it. Go work for McKenzie, man. You clearly bamboozled yourself into the PhD program. So <laughs> what's stopping you? No, I'm just kidding. I'm being. I'm being facetious. Um, no, but like but it, it's 50%. it's like the the PhD teaches you how to talk about things, but it doesn't necessarily teach you how to do things. And yeah. so there's so much more to life than just having a PhD. And um, I I just talked to a close friend of mine who's in her PhD program, and you know it's not going that well. And yeah. so it and it's like okay, well here's what you've done. Here's what you're good at. And, you know, being an outside perspective, it's, it's actually, you know, it's talk is cheap. Of course, it's harder when you're in the arena, but, um, 
So have self-assessment and if things are not working, make the change, right? Yeah. Um, and then the final thing is, you know, a lot is made of mental health and there's a, you know, which is actually great. You know, it's great to see so much attention on that. And, um, I, I will admit I'm one of those people that has been like throughout my career, a very stressful career, um, who's kind of shunned help, who's shunned support, who's shunned, you know, talking through things with people. But the reason I've been, it's been so easy to shun is because I had a phenomenal support network in place. I had good friends, people going through the same thing that I could talk to. I never felt the acute need to go talk to a professional. And one thing I will say, the PhD program is, it's such a unique power dynamic and there are so many failures of leadership as we discussed earlier among senior people to to mentor and guide people through this pretty arduous i don't think i ever circled back on it it's intellectually arduous because we're always we're within our heads we're constantly in our heads right that's that that's kind of a dangerous space to be in you know you it requires discipline to be there oh indeed so so, so my point is find at all costs, find a community that you can rely on, that you can be vulnerable in front of. And whether that's, you know, like at Scripps, we've got great initiatives for, mm-hmm. you know, women, mm-hmm. for um, people of color, for, you know, non-cis folks. Like, like there's so many different affinity groups out there and it requires a little bit of courage to show up to those meetings, but it's so worth the time. And, and your, your health, your mental health trumps literally everything, you know, like, like the PhD, you know, like this sounds callous, but screw it. Take care of yourself, you know, take care of your body, take care of your mind. That's what's most important. You know, like there's nothing else than your health and you being happy in this life. So that's what I would say. God damn, Billy Jenkins dropping some motherfucking knowledge. <laughs> and and be nice to each other. That's there, that's the last thing I would say. Everybody just chill the fuck out and be nice. <laughs> you hear that, Putin? Uh, chill yeah, the fuck out. That goes to that goes to everybody, including <laughs> Vladimir Putin. Everybody's got their ways. Everybody will make it where they have to make it eventually. <laughs> we can all chill. Yep. And for today, we'll chill. We'll stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening, our dear <laughs> fans, our dear following. Wait, we got we got one more thing to do. Is that it? Is that <laughs> it? <laughs> Great. No, but I'm leaving that in for All right, sure. Cool. <laughs> um, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Facebook, but I never check it. Um, I'm on Instagram, but I never post. <laughs> Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, great. Does that work? We'll count it. Yeah, yeah and I, I do have a personal website. Yeah, Ooh. shout it out. Because we'll I link it in the I'm, description. I'm a little old school. Did you guys? I'm about to show my age. Have you guys ever heard of Angel Fire? I have, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> 
They're, two of your listeners are going to laugh when they listen to this if they get this far into it. But, um, okay, yeah, no. Um, it's just uh, wjenkins.me. That's kind of my professional, you know, persona that I've put out on the web. Very nice. All right. But LinkedIn works too. We'll, we'll like right. it. Yeah. yeah. Go for well, it. okay. So thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thank you, viewers. Thank <laughs> you.